Welcome to Growing Up Fire with Jamie Coots. Seahawk, it is our commitment to you that you have complete access to the top professionals, industry experts, and products for your fire service. We stand by the service and products we provide. We are proud of our past, and we are constantly listening to our customers and exploring new ways to bring better options to the fire service. This is Seahawk. High level, safety, service, security. Please visit our website at www.seahawkservice.ca or give us a call at 1-888-791-4210. All right, here we are again. Growing up fire, season four, episode one. I got Ryan Coots in the house, one of your fan favorites. We're gonna talk about everything 2023 and maybe into 2024. Ryan, cheers. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for coming. Nice way to spend uh, New Year's Day. Yes, absolutely. 2023, man, the year of some chaos, right? We got to travel uh, all over Canada together doing some work. We got to do some deployments, both together and apart. We talked about that in the podcast. Wildfires. Here we are. It's uh, December 31st, and there's not a lick of snow anywhere. And even when we're up in Slave over Christmas, we got a little bit of rain, but not really anything for snow. So I guess we could just say it. Hey, what are you thinking for 2024? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's Alberta, so the snow could come in April and stay, but... uh read an article that John Valiant was a part of there and they're talking about El Nino and how it's the second year this year and it's usually warmer and drier and all the water things that could come down and how 2016 when Fort Macburn was the second year of El Nino and it's kind of cool. I don't really follow that that much, but it was a cool article to read. So it'll be interesting to see what happens if it stays this dry. Do you remember that time we were sitting upstairs in Slave Lake? It was just before the Fort McMurray fire and Dennis Quintilio stopped by and he was talking about the weather and how bad it was going to be and how we all better get ready and change the way we think because the weather is a cycle, right? Forget about everything else and all the fights over climate change. The weather in itself is a cycle and the older you get, the more you can see that that's a cycle. And uh, he kind of gave us the doom and gloom speech middle of winter you don't think about it much and then that spring we're sitting there in Fort McMurray thinking oh my goodness this is something right so I often think of that and it's really kind of annoying because everybody's got their own opinion and everybody's got their own saying and you know you don't know whether to think the government's just getting more taxes from us and how do they get all these scientists on board then and so there's all this weirdness with global warming but at the end of the day to guys like us it just means out there fighting fire yeah i think most of the people that i've talked to i mean i was only two but 1998 it sounds like a lot of the older guys that have been in it for a while kind of seem like a similar year is kind of a brown christmas and sounds like there was some decent fire seasons to follow after that so yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's hard to predict that stuff. I listen to the science for that, that forestry provides us usually, you know, once we get closer, but this far out, they still don't want to get caught with their foot in their mouth. So they're not saying much either, but. Ian Johnston, right? You don't count the rain till it's in the bucket, right? Yeah. So who knows in the spring and, and all that's going to go on. But uh, yeah, 98, 2000, 2001 were all real serious years that were a lot like what we're talking about today floods and fires and all the other chaos right down here in uh, southern alberta we had the 
tornado that went through Carstairs and got five places. Luckily, no one was killed, but, you know, it kind of just wakes you up to, hey, things are changing. Things are going to go on. Took a trip out to Harrison Hot Springs. We didn't talk about that much in 2023, but Kirsten and I went out there and we were doing a talk. There was some people in the community that were worried about Fire Smart, and basically the politicians were just acting like it's a known starter. And and uh, Ross, the guy that had called us, said, uh, "Do you want to come and do a talk?" And I said, "Sure." You know, my mom lives in Abbotsford, so I'll just shoot over and kind of make it a holiday. And I remember sitting there and it started to rain on the day we got there a little bit, which is the only thing that gave me any kind of restful night's sleep, right? There was a fire about eight kilometers away from the community at that time across the mountain range. And, you know, just kind of following along what's going on. And it's hard to believe. I mean, it's a town that really shows you how half the people can really believe strongly about something and, and see it happening and understand it. And half just want to stick their head in the sand and pretend there's no chance, no way, no how. Um, and you could find anyone to say anything, right? You could find a scientist to say, no, it's a different kind of tree type. You don't have to worry, even though there's a huge wildfire eight kilometers away from here. You could find a local that, you know, says, well, it never burned down yet, so it's not going to. And then you could find people like us that say, well, that's crazy, <laughs> you know? So it was a crazy place to go and visit and to listen to. And the community really showed up. There was a couple hundred people showed up to listen and talk and ask questions and fight about it. And it's been a real hot bed of activity. So I think it's a great opportunity when there's a fire that close to really put like, you know, some validity in it for the people that are the non-believers too, right? Like, you're always going to have those people that are the naysayers and say that it's could never happen, but it's probably nice to have that fire, well, bad and good to have that fire right close well while you're giving that talk. And I think it's part of kind of what I guess both of us are known for in the fire service, which is saying what needs to be said, right? Doesn't, uh, I'm not a political guy. I'm not, uh, I don't follow the science per se, right? Who's science, I guess, right? So sometimes just got to say what's got to be said and we were in a rough spot 2011 when the town burnt down. and But even this year, like you watch as the West Kelowna Fire Chief went to the UN and started talking about climate change and kind of got on board on a whole political train that really isn't backed and not in his wheelhouse, right? But saying like, oh, now the fire hit, so now we really have to change and everybody should listen to me and everyone should change. I felt sorry for him. Because really, that's how I was in 2011. It's how, you know, Darby and Jody were in 2016. And it just kind of keeps going. And every time this happens, there's people are talking about it, but they're talking about it like it never happened before. And so it really makes me sad. It makes me a bit sick, actually, that people just don't, everyone wants to be the first one and they want to talk about what's going on. And they can only talk about it from their level of understanding or education about that topic. So... I think we just got to get out there and keep saying what needs to be said. And at the end of the day, I think the science and everything, it's good that forestry provides us with that stuff. So we have an idea of what's coming. They don't like to do more than 14 days because they don't know, right? And they've been bit lots of times before. But at the end of the day, people don't pay us to come and do our job, to have an opinion on all that stuff. They pay us to be ready and protect their properties and have the right equipment and the right training and stuff. So to me, I always try to stay out of that. And, you know, I think that we've all done some good stuff with Wuio over the years and we try to just stay in our lane and 
battle the political battles that need to be battled to continue that. But as far as the the big scale things, there's other people that can figure that out. And like you said, there's some scientists that say it one way, some that say the other way. At the end of the day, people just expect us to be ready. And that's what we need to focus on, I think. To me, I agree with you. It's why I always loved listening to the meteorologists that worked for Alberta Forestry, because they really were just looking at kind of the next 24 hours to the next 14 days, roughly what they thought could happen. And they would talk like that and say, this could happen, that could happen. We don't know, right? It's uh, the next couple of days. I'm pretty sure this is going to happen. And you could start to, you know, almost bet on what they were saying for the next 24 hours. So I used to love to sit there and listen to that. But again, it's tough, right? Here in Alberta, for sure, if you don't like the weather, wait 15 minutes and we'll see what we got then, right? Yeah. Well, I think there's a, this year was the first year that I really, during the Smith fires on the Old Smith Highway, they put that modeling that they have in, right? So it's over the next, whatever, 48 hours, 72 hours. If there's no suppression, if there's no change in weather, if there's none of this stuff, this is what the fire could go to. So they have a model for it, but it's not right? It's, it's, if there's no firefighters out there fighting it, if, if there's no planes, it's if there's no helicopters. So, you know, like those models look bad and it's good because it gets us all in the right frame of mind, but we know that we're going to do better than that probably. Right. So yeah, we're going to fight fire or the weather could change. Yeah. Or, yeah. I don't know about the doomsday modeling. I always wondered about that. It's good, I guess, to look at the worst case scenario, but that maybe even goes past the worst case scenario, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, it's how they do it. And and all the power to them. I, they got to do what I don't, right? Yeah. For me, 2023 was just another one of those years, let your reputation speak for itself. So I'm a firm believer, just, you know, keep your head down, work, 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 and people will see what you're doing and word will spread. But I won't lie, 2023 almost broke me as far as that goes, right? There's a couple of firefighters that work for us down here that were just pieces of crap. They just disgusting human beings that said a lot of things. And it took a long, long time, almost all of 2023 for that to catch up and for people to start sticking up saying, Hey, no, that's not how it actually works. And that's not what actually happened. And 2023 was a tough year. There was the the big deployment stuff. There's uh, lots of changes going on and that kind of stuff. So it wasn't all perfect, I guess is the key, right? So for the people out there that think life has to be perfect and that everything has to be perfect, it's not for us either. So one of my favorites is uh, watching who's watching, you know, the counter surveillance. I, I just, uh, you know, I don't know why so many people that hate me so much have to watch me so closely, but it's hilarious, right? I don't know, maybe it's time to start speaking out about that too. So it's hard because the people who talk a lot always get the limelight more often, but they always end up getting caught. It seems like too, right? They get caught up in their own lies or their own BS and whatever else. So, you know, maybe there's not as much limelight on the people that just do it right and keep their head down and do the work, but you know, the good people will always see that. And the people who can't keep their mouth shut usually ends up catching up with them sooner or later. So we can only hope, right? 2023 was a year of big builds. So uh, we just recorded a podcast not that long ago with you and your chief about building that rescue truck in Slave Lake. And we got a chance to go through an engine and a rapid response truck build where I am here. And so to me, it's always crazy that we're buying these multi-million dollar things, right? Fire halls, fire trucks. And really no one's given us any training for that. You just got to go out there and work with builders and work with other people that have built trucks like that and try to figure it all out and move it forward. I don't know. What do you think of that process? I don't know. I think, you know, you say, uh, 
you could have 400 different fire departments and they run 500 different ways. That's definitely true about trucks, right? I enjoy it. I follow a lot of the different manufacturers and it's so crazy. Like every single one has something that's a little bit different. There's almost no one that builds two trucks the exact same. I look at trucks and I'm like, oh, that would be a cool one for our service, but I'd change this, this and this, right? And it is definitely, I guess, more towards what you're used to and how you kind of operate. But at the same time, you know, it makes you wonder, like, could we save money if they just built a fire truck as a fire truck as a fire truck and you move some tools around and, you know, would it cost us 1.2 million to buy an engine now or could it just cost us 800,000 and everyone gets the cookie cutter and moves a few things around, right? Like, it's cool. There's, you know, you can always tell the fire departments that have lots of money as opposed to the ones that are scraping together the fancy bells and whistles and all that stuff. And, you know, we were really lucky that uh, our council agreed to replace our rescue and it was a two-year process but uh you know i think for us we really focused on just trying to make it what we needed for our service and and left all the the fancy stuff behind right i, I could, probably could have spent another three hundred thousand dollars on that truck if i got everything that i ever saw that was cool but do you need it how often is it going to happen you know things like that so it's interesting for sure but yeah i agree i think manufacturers maybe something they could take on or someone for sure it could be a course in itself on considerations on building a fire truck and more so less the stuff that you see is cool and more how are you going to make this truck work well for your service right and I think that's what people really got to look at, right? Like your levels of service, your training, the kind of calls you have, like your realistic statistics that you're a fire department that gets 16 calls a year. You better be looking at a pretty plain Jane chopped down version of a fire truck if you're being responsible with the money at all. You're doing thousands of calls. Yeah, you can get a bigger, better truck that does more things and has more options. But I think it really comes back to that whole lack of training, lack of and then there's that ego turf time and money piece, right? So how much money am I allowed to spend? Where can I spend it? How can I spend it? And then, uh, you know, I need what my neighbor has, right? So keeping up with the Joneses, uh, you see that. And it's, I think after we got to our 500 fire halls, we backed off that whole thing a little bit. But I will tell you in 2024, I'm back on that train, right? Like I, so 500 was good enough. Now I got to, I should try and see a thousand. Because as we helped customers try and build fire halls this year and we started building some of our own stuff, it really became apparent to me how many things I've seen and how you can sort through what you like and don't like. And if you can start with a, I like this kind of fire hall, but I just need to change it this way and this way for, for what I, I want to do here. It really, really helps. So having that huge catalog, that huge Rolodex of trucks and fire halls really helped try to narrow down what's acceptable and what we should actually get. Well, I think the biggest one that I always see that that's funny to me is, is rescue trucks. It's hard for me because I come from a regional service and it's a little bit different, I guess, but you know, there's so many of these fire departments that want every single little town wants their own rescue truck with their own tools and their own. I'm from a place that has five fire stations. We do a third of our calls. We're just under 700 this year, our MVCs. So we do a lot of rescue stuff and we have one rescue truck for our entire region, right? It, it it's long drive sometimes it's got to go far places edmonton city of a million people has 35 pumps and 
what, six, seven rescues, I think only, right? So when you look at that and then you see these places that are more rural and every single community has a rescue truck, right? We're going through some of it with our partners right now, some of who we've worked with, right? They don't have dedicated rescues or their dedicated rescues are coming up for replacement. So how can you fit some of that equipment that is essential for what you do on your trucks? And then can you have mutual aid with a bigger place that has a rescue truck that could come for those once a year crazy calls where you need tons of tools or stabilization or any of that stuff. It's cool. Don't get me wrong. I think a lot of people rescue is something that got added to the fire service later, obviously, throughout the the history of the fire service. So everyone wants to do it because it's the cool tools and the cool stuff to have. But like you said, you got to look at your statistics. How much of the time are you actually using that, right? Like I said, a third of our calls this year are probably MVCs. And then of those third of our calls that are MVCs, how many times are we actually taking tools off the truck to cut somebody out or whatever, right? So even for us, it's a small percentage that your tools are actually coming off the truck and you have to to do something big or, you know, those specialty tools and stuff like that. Like it's, you know, probably 10 calls a year for us. So in these small places, like you said, that have 50 calls a year, is it even one? Is it a couple every three, four years, right? It's tough. You see it in different parts of Canada as you go along, right? There was uh, parts of Canada that just, they, everybody, every second place bought an aerial. And you're like, what are you doing? Like, those are between a million and two and a half million dollars, right? And then, you know, other places where everyone switched to, we got to have a custom cab truck. We know that that's a more expensive, bigger, crazier truck. So for me, I'm offended all the time because I can remember when a fire truck cost 250000 I don't know how upset the guys are that can remember that a fire truck was 50000 like the first one ever in Slave Lake. But uh, it does get crazier and crazier and the prices go up. Just in the last couple of years, the prices have gone up about 30%. Now, when you're talking about a million bucks, that's a big jump, right? And so I don't know when it's going to stop or how it's going to stop, but pretty soon we're not going to be able to afford those trucks. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the problem, right? Lots of these places got aerials back when you could buy, even when we bought ours in Slave, right? Like it's definitely under a million dollars. We got a demo unit. It was a great truck, served us well for a long time, but now you buy that truck for whatever, 600,000 and now you're going to replace it. And it's, we're talking like, a million and a half to two and a half. It's like, whoa, where did that come from, right? When we look back at the budget, it was only, you know, half that or a a quarter, a third of that, right? So these places that, you know, same thing, buy a 10-year used ladder truck from a big city and then they put it in service in their place for another 10, 15 years. Then all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, we got to replace this now and we need to look at this big, crazy. So there's lots of, uh, you know, it's hard. It's, uh, and trucks is a a difficult one because I think we could do it a lot better and maybe help fire departments with money in different ways, paying our paid on calls better or or tons of different things, right? But that flashiness of the fire trucks is always the one that kind of comes to the limelight because everyone likes it and wants it. And we get to see so many fire halls and, and we get to evaluate a lot of fire halls as part of our company. And, you know, you'll, so many places out there, they're saving 35 to 50,000 a year. So over a 20 year span, you're going to get to a million dollars, but they're running six fire trucks. Like that million dollars might not even buy you one fire truck after 20 years, right? And so they're doing better than some who aren't saving at all. It's just been really tough to figure out how to, you know, you build a fire hall and you want it to be a 50 year build, but the people today want today's price and today's size, but you also know it's important to build for the next 50 years. And so budgets are an interesting piece, right? OH&S has driven us to have to do more, change out things more often, to do more maintenance, to do more new purchases for equipment. And yet 
the budgets aren't keeping up with the drive of OHS. And so people think that's kind of just this fake thing. And well, prove it, prove it, prove it. It's like, oh, wow, that, that's a hard thing to do when you're in budgets, right? It's like, prove to me you need an arena. Prove to me you need four graders. Prove to me that you have to repave that street. It's like, you're asking us to do something that you never have to do. And it's different for the fire service. So it's been interesting. I, I'm excited for 2024 to see what challenges come. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about 2024, right? 2024, I got a couple things. I'm going to try and get my podcasts out early for the text to get them ready. So I'm on time and ready to go and ahead all the time. And for the people that know me best, I'm getting off ice caps. <laughs> so there's there's no AA for ice caps. So I'm having to do this cold turkey. I'll see how I make out. I'll give you an update as we go along. That's a couple things for me. 2024 is a big year for you, Ryan. You got a lot of things going on. Yeah, yeah. We're getting married at the end of February, which is exciting and looking to, uh, yeah, just excited for that and start building our life. So we're excited about that and uh, just lots of opportunities for us as a, a couple and a family. And yeah, and then work's going to be busy too. Always lots of projects going on. And you'd asked me yesterday kind of what, what our plan is. And I'm like, oh, there's not actually that much. And then I after I said that, I started rattling off all the things I was thinking about. And there was like 20 items on the list that I could just think of off the top of my head, right? Big things happening and trying to change for the better and just keep status quo in some areas too, right? So yeah. And then the people just keep rolling, right? There's people are coming, people are going, you're building and losing folks. And I got to train everybody up and try to meet these standards, right? So you know, for us at Grown Up Fire, it's exciting. We've got uh, working, we're still working with Seahawk and we got some new and exciting customers. So going to be out in Ontario in a few days, heading to Saskatchewan a couple weeks after that, you know, more industrial style customers, which is kind of a cool expansion piece for us. And then still keeping all of our municipal customers from Nova Scotia to BC and everything in between so far. So that's been fun. What were some of the places we went that you really loved in 2023? You know, I think honestly, the Nova Scotia trip for me was probably the coolest just to see the vast difference of fire service from one side of the country to the other. I've done a few jobs with you guys now in Alberta and heard a lot about some in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and it's it's very similar, right? Some of the same struggles, money, people, all that stuff. But to go that far east and just see a system that's so different from what I'm used to and how OHS is different over there, you know, province to province sets that. So what are the rules and regulations that they do set out? And then just the overall operation of the fire service, right? We're all experiencing the same hardships, I think right now with people and money and stuff like that. But uh, just to see how different things are is it was a really cool piece. And I think it kind of is the same in the States too, right? Like, you know, you got the big departments on the East coast that have lots of money, but still, like a, a lot of volunteerism over there a lot of you know like those true volunteer departments where we came from some time ago with you know voting and you know in the states they have departments that are staffed 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year by volunteers and like some of that stuff that's just totally different from the west coast and some of what we do so that was just a really cool one to be able to sit and talk and i think the other thing that made that one cool was there was just so many firefighters that we got to talk to, right? We went to a place that had 11 different fire stations that we had to do. We went to some different counties while we were there and talked to different fire chiefs and different firefighters and got to talk to them about their EMS system, which, you know, is obviously a struggle in Alberta too. And it was cool to see that 
so many of the problems are still the same in a totally different system. And it really made you just wonder, you know, what's next and what's coming for all of that and, and how we're going to continue to adapt and overcome with some of those issues and stuff like that. So nice. I had to love getting out to South Carolina and Charleston and seeing, uh, Chief Griffin and getting to actually be in Charleston and walk the Sofaland site and just how much that impacted their service. And, you know, those deaths, although tragic and, and not needed, have helped change and inspire generations of fire service people there now and, and change the way that they do their business. And so it was neat to get into that and talk to them and be on their home turf. Uh, his chief came out and we got to meet with him and kind of his trouble as he came from another place and got embedded into Charleston and, and started to work through the right different set of eyes, different coming at it a different way. Just reminded me to really always look at a bunch of different perspectives, not just my own. It's easy to get buried in your own perspective, but to look at it from other people's eyes and, and to see that, you know, we, our hotel had a big alarm one night. And so we got oh, a couple tiller trucks pulled up, right? And we we're just like, wow, that's cool. We don't see that that much where we're from. And got to kind of sparked an idea in our heads about uh, why don't we see that and what's going on with that. So I think that that was crazy for me to go there and see that and be part of that. Just got back from San Diego, you know, not long ago where there was tons of fire trucks and tons of different things going on there too. And, and tellers again, and, you know, they had ships in the Harbor to take care of and downtown skyscrapers and, you know, the, how they handled their homeless issues. And there, there's just a lot to learn in different places. So not that I didn't love Nova Scotia. That was great. And it's always great to get out there and see all the different things, but they're on the, I don't know if it'll happen 2024 or 25 or 26, but they're on the verge of having to change. So their uh, volunteer fire service world is going to change to some kind of paid on call system. And it's just how it is. Right. And so as that uh, starts to happen, it gets worse before it gets better, I guess, is a saying for a reason. Right. So I think the States ones were cool. I got to see some stuff, didn't really get as involved versus other places we go, you're kind of more involved. Looking back though, past that, I love to see the MD of Opportunity just prospering with all the information that we worked through together and uh, Big Lakes doing a great job, KTC up in the North. And, and so you love to look back at customers you've worked with and tell everybody it's going to take three years and a couple of budget cycles. And now all of a sudden it's been three years and a couple of budget cycles and you see it starting to come together. And so it kind of re-energizes you and says, Hey, let's, let's keep helping these folks and let's keep getting out there and spreading the message. And it's a tough conversation to have now, but three years from now it starts to come together and, and you see the people with that roadmap, they're able to push forward and do stuff. So planning is important for everybody, right? Whatever you're doing, not just this year, but the next five years, the next 10 years. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely cool to see some of that stuff come to light, right? Like even for me, Big Lakes is one of our partners and been a, an official mutual aid partner for a long time. And we're that's some of the stuff that we're starting to fix, which is awesome. Good to see us, you know, putting some pen to paper, but it's cool, right? Like even for me, you you hear some of the suggestions that you guys made and and some of the different things that, you know, were talked about and stuff. And even for me, I'm like, oh, I don't know if they're going to go for that, right? Like I know some of those guys out there that are, you know, 
don't want to change. And there's lots in our service too. Everyone has them. And, and then all of a sudden you see them start to actually change. And I think they have a really good administrative staff over there that jumped on board, got uh, to have lots of meetings with you guys and kind of put their input in, which is how I think a service review should be. And because of that, I think they, they jumped two feet in. And I think that's why I like our system better is it's a lot nicer to be able to have those conversations and work it out together rather than, you know, council hires a, an, a firm to come in and do a thing. And maybe you get, you know, one 20 minute conversation as the chief with them. And then all of a sudden you get a report on your desk and it's like, yeah, this is all the stuff you should do. And it's just like, well, whose opinion was that, right? Like there should be some internal input, lots of internal input, because, you know, as a consulting company, we don't know what they know, right? There, You can only look from the outside. And if you don't try to learn how they do things and how they operate, it's really hard to just give recommendations on that. It's almost impossible to change a service from within without information from within. Yeah. Right. And so it's so important for them to say, well, I like this. I don't like that. Move this here, move that there. It's scary and it's hard. And I get the political will has to be there to have those kind of talks. Right. But at the same token, it's critical that they're part of that conversation. So, yeah, I think another thing too is, you know, you touching on South Carolina, it's cool to see kind of East and West coast, probably to see that there's so many similarities and so many differences from side of the country to side of the country, like we talked about in Canada, but another big thing I think for you as a, the, the person that heads up the contracting side is going to Charleston and getting that story because, you know, like. Chief Griffin says when he's in his presentations, it, it could happen to you, your fire department, right? You're the fire department that gets 16 calls a year and it could just be that one time. Fire doesn't get to choose the population or, or what happens. So it's important to be able to pull from other people's experiences like that too, because there is so many changes in every single fire service that you know need to happen to make us safer and better. I don't think anyone's immune from that. And we should be trying to make those changes before bad things happen, right? Because you shouldn't have to wait until something bad happens to make those drastic changes. You should be working towards those, even if they aren't drastic, you know, at a, at a sooner date. I, I think of your stories that you tell and there's still a picture on the wall of the current fire that could have went totally different and it probably would have changed a lot of things right then. And it didn't go as bad as it could have gone. And then it probably kind of just got swept under the rug and, hey, we'll make a couple changes internally. But I think now, like if the politicians at the time knew how bad that could have been, what could have been changed, right? How close were we actually to having a bunch more names on the wall and a bunch of fallen firefighters in line of duty deaths that day? Would that have made a difference? But unfortunately, the fire service only makes those big drastic changes when there's injuries and deaths and things like that. That's a small town fire department that was a heartbeat away from six firefighters being critically burnt in the basement of a, a flashover, right? So yeah, it's about training. It's about knowing. It's about, uh, you know, and I'm always happy that those six firefighters felt the changes and saw the changes and said, we don't know what's changing exactly, but we're going to pull out anyways. But that will forever have changed my way of looking at fires. You know, one of our firefighters fell off the top of a fire truck. And so that forever changes how I feel about firefighters being up on the top of a fire truck. And people are like, man, you worry about that a lot. And it's like, until you've heard that thud, until you see what's going on, just Keep your comments to yourself when you're around me. I saw it. I know uh, we got really lucky and John was okay, but he might not have been. And so to make changes, to make it safer, I'm all about that, right? It's always funny too. I always think of that uh, story and then 
with Andrew after the fire, getting the fan in the head, right? And it's funny too, because we say, you know, we make internal changes, but sometimes you want a little bit more support. And I think back to the OHS guy that came over and said, every time we do truck checks now, we're going to wear helmets on the top of the truck. And that was his fix, right? Instead of just moving the fan over. And then we made a suggestion as the fire department, oh, why don't we just move the fans over? Oh yeah, I guess that would work too, right? Like, <laughs> so it, it always needs some of that internal input for sure as well, right? Yeah. And I think that that's a great example of how our eval tool works, right? It's making sure that we're getting some outside opinion and some OHS opinion and the NFPA and following the rules, but also that you just have to have some local, well, that that's a bit much for us. Yeah. Can't we just move the fan five feet? Because <laughs> that's like almost free, right? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. And you do, you go places and you see there's a cage around the fan or, you know, all of these things that people do and you're just like, Ooh, that happened to them too. You, yeah. <laughs> you literally could have just moved the fan, yeah. but, right. And so it's crazy how it gets handled again, all those different ways. All right. I want to talk a little bit about fitness and health because we've been talking about this the last few days and certainly mental health and fitness have been a huge impactor in my job and I'm sure your job this past year and will be in 2024. And so I want to talk a little bit about peer fitness, right? So having the fire department build the fitness program and monitor it and do the testing. I watched some great happiness, I would say, a successful program come to life down here in the South. And, and I'm excited to see it and excited to see there, right? Anyone that knows me and has seen me knows I'm not like super pumped about fitness, but I'm, I'm happy that the firefighters are taking it serious and moving it forward. I'm happy to say that I'm getting in on the morning workouts now, which is uh, a key change for me. And, and so all of these things, but, uh, you know, having a fitness program ram it down their throat or peer fitness, which one are you liking? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, we're definitely still on the side of having a fitness program and, and ramming it down their throat and talking to you about what some of the changes you guys made are and what you're doing is, uh, definitely something that I'll bring back. And I do think there's a great level of, you know, responsibility when the people that you work with every day are the ones looking at you instead of just some, you know, white shirt with a checklist saying, yeah, you did that. Yeah, you did that. Yeah, you did that. Now all of a sudden you're being judged by, you know, it's, it's the same thing as that healthy competition when you're doing a push up competition or trying to run up a, a hose tower. If someone did it just before you, or someone knows that you're going just after them, they're going to push themselves a little bit more to try and get that right. There's that healthy competition in the fire service always, whether it's fitness or, or anything else that we do. So I think it's good. It uh, adds a little bit of fun to it maybe and doesn't make it so serious and, you know, maybe a little bit less eye rolling and it's just a, a checkbox to get checked off by the end of the year rather than, you know, having that good level of peer-to-peer. -peer and back to those tough discussions, yeah. right? It's like, hey, you know, you're you're sliding here. It's like, I'm, I'm a chubbier guy, right? But I can still do everything that I could always do. But will I always be able to? At some point, we're going to have to have that talk and say, hey, put your health more at the front here and, and change the way you are or make darn sure you're not putting yourself in those positions where, right? And so that's kind of key. Acres Emergency Vehicles, a message from our community. A person who is risking his or her life to save the lives and properties of others deserves something as reliable as an Acres Emergency Vehicle. This is our mission, to thank these people with the best gift we can, our best effort. Our commitment includes a firefighter-driven design, manufacturing integrity, personal and professional service. We are here to serve. We guarantee personal and professional service every step of the way. Acres Emergency Vehicles, 
built for a life of service. Please visit our website at www.acresev.ca. The mental health has been another one. It's like a super challenging year for that, right? Trying to figure out how to help firefighters and and where to to go to get that information. It's like everything else. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody's tried to monetize it, right? So now all of a sudden, instead of what started out as, hey, this is good for firefighters, is how do we make a bunch of money off of it here and there? Agencies popping up and funding models are, are increasing. But at the end of the day, it's so critical for us to protect the mental health of our firefighters. But I just don't, you know, it's it's tricky, right? Every time someone comes to me and says, this is what has to happen, I still don't have that firefighter checklist in my head where, you know, we really rock it if we got do one, did do two, do three, do four. Mental health's not easy like that. I think for me, uh, I wish I remembered who I talked to about it, but we had a really good conversation one night after practice and we're just kind of talking about it. And for the first time ever this year, it clicked for me that we as the fire service, anyway, in our fire service anyways, I've always worried about what we expose firefighters to and how we help them with that. But again, the statistics from whoever makes the statistics on this says that one in three people struggle with some sort of mental health issue or, you know, whether it's a, an isolated event or something that's ongoing or whatever. Not not just in the fire service. Not just, just in the fire service, in, yeah. right? Overall. So we have a hundred firefighters and search and rescue people. So that means... 33.333% probably have something going on that we don't know about. So, you know, it's great that we worry about what we expose them to and how we help them with that. But we had a lot this year that we dealt with, whether it be finances or family or whatever, right? It's a tough time for everyone coming out of COVID and um, the recession that's not called a recession, I guess. Um, and so it's it's hard, right? There, There's those things that you need to be ready with your mental health program for any of those things. And you need to think about all of those things. And we need to j- stop just thinking about, oh no, what if someone dies in a car accident and we need to help them with that? Oh no, what if that's the incident that pushes them over the edge because their glass is already full? What if, what if there's someone that comes in and just starts crying on the desk because they have things that are completely unrelated to the fire service because that person having those issues now sets you back another firefighter while they go and get help. So that still affects your fire service, right? It's we're the employer that's not a real employer because we don't have these people every day. They're not here every single day. They're there once a week. And maybe they put that smile on for the two hour practice that we get to see them, but we don't get to see them every single day, all day. And those problems still come up. And oftentimes fire services and the fire department you're a part of, I think is a safe place where a lot of your friends are and a lot of people that you can just have those candid conversations. So I feel like those issues that people are having personally come out more at the fire station rather than at their own job because they feel more comfortable there and and more personable there. And I think like it doesn't get any easier when it's full-time people, I could tell you, right? So it's, they still have the same percentages that they follow and life still gets going. And I think that uh, if I learn one thing this year, it's that, you know, when it is work-related, there's unlimited resources to try and help you and get you back and make sure you're paid so that your life doesn't fall apart. It's when it's just life that's getting you down and it's not work-related that, you know, like our benefits are 500 bucks for the year. That's two and a half times with a counselor before you're paying for it with your own money. I just, you know, if, if those stats are true and they seem like they are to me, how can there not be bigger call EAP and they're going to, yeah, it's just some person talking to you and spend your 500 bucks for you. And 
it it doesn't uh it's not big enough it's not enough right if they answer the phone that's a story for another time yeah but it's, <laughs> so it's expensive right it's expensive to talk to these people it's expensive to get help and you can't just ruin your whole family finances to but i don't if you don't get help what happens this is continues key, right? to affect your job and your life and everything else and right? i think it's, maybe why one in three people is so affected by it is because you can't get the help when you need it to and so it goes on and on and on until it's so bad that now you can get all the help but Maybe there's some work to be done there where I'm going to, in 2024, try and get together with Wayne Jasper and uh, our peer support team here locally and Jason and Zaz and some of those guys from Edmonton and just try to get some more info for people out there onto the airwaves because I don't know enough about it, right? I support it. I'll spend money on it all day. I try to figure it out, but... uh and I'm no expert on it. And so I think that's a hard part too, is being a boss that doesn't have the answers can be a bit tricky, right? Hard on, uh, hard yeah. on. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the, right. We talk about money and the struggles with staffing or paying paid on calls or switching from volunteer to paid on call and trucks and everything else. I think in an ideal world, it would be awesome. I love what, you know, Edmonton and Calgary's have done. They have, you know, doctors and mental health people that are on staff, they work for Edmonton Fire, but not all of us can afford that, right? But to have somebody where, you know, you have 300, 400 firefighters, and again, that same one in three, maybe that's what you're following. So you know they're going to be booked up. So you just have them on staff and it doesn't matter, right? You need to go talk about personal life. You need to go get your nuts checked or whatever. You just book in with your own doctor who is on payroll or, you know, maybe subcontracts on the side, but their main gig is working for you. Like that would be an awesome thing to have for all fire departments. And, but we don't have unlimited money. Like a lot of these big places do, right? We can't afford to pay a doctor $700,000 a year, like AHS can to, to just work for us. And, you know, the other thing is not all doctors can deal with all those different things, right? You probably need five doctors that all specialize in five different things in order to fully encapsulate everything. So now we're talking about you know, yeah. 3 million bucks all of yeah, a sudden. Nobody can afford Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. So it's cool. I think, you know, some of those big places have done it well. I think there's some good examples of cities where they put emergency services together too, right? EPS and um, Edmonton Fire, they can put that stuff together. Calgary and the, the police and the fire can put that stuff together. And now all of a sudden it's an emergency services facility where, you know, you have almost a thousand employees that can use it in those high stress jobs, those high stress environments. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is totally worth it to have three doctors on staff to make sure all of our people are taken care of. But again, it, it just limits you when you, you don't have that access to all that money. It, it kind of takes like, so we talked about fitness, mental health, and now the medical side of it, right? So as we research how to go see a doctor, you know, it's everything from $800 down to $200. And do we get the heavy metal test? Do we, you know, and, and by the time you look at all of these things and all, everything that it costs, it's like, you could spend unlimited money on this. We don't have unlimited money. So how do you figure it out? How do you go see a doctor, right? You know, I got a, a skin thing that I don't like and I want to get checked out and I got to get a four month appointment, an appointment for four months from now to go see a doctor so that I could get a referral to a specialist that I'll probably have to wait another eight months for. Like if that is cancer, I'm as good as dead anyways. So nice system, but how do we make that better? How do we get in that, right? In a job where we have a really elevated rate of cancer, don't, I don't think that's good enough. And so it's been a trick to kind of figure this all out and without, you know, you don't want to bump a million other people, but we also have a crazy risk of cancer and, and hurting ourselves in this job. So I don't know how to figure it all out. 
All right. So on to some more fun things. That's kind of like Debbie Downer stuff, but some travel on the books. So I know I'm going to Australia, Ontario, Nova Scotia, BC, Northwest Territories, California, and Montana. So that's already booked for this year. How about you? You got some more add-ons from there? Yeah, we're going to uh, Mexico for our honeymoon right after the wedding, which will be a good break for us, I think. Me and Alex got together in late 2019, right before COVID. So we haven't really had a chance to do much traveling since gone to a few places in North America, but haven't got to go anywhere hot yet. So that'll be exciting. Saskatchewan, I'm looking forward to in January. I know it sounds weird when we're talking about holidays, but uh, it'll be good to go out and just see something else, right? Going to try and go to Australia for Miranda's wedding uh, with you guys. So we'll see how that all pans out. But uh, yeah, lots of good stuff going on. We'll probably hang around for most of the summer and just try and enjoy it and go camping. Alex has finally done school. So be nice to have our, our summers back and have a little bit more money in the bank and everything else. So yeah, it's good. Oh, come on. You're an adult now. I have money in the bank's not a real Yeah, thing. exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And then like the ones you don't mention, right? Like I'll be over to Manitoba and see all my friends there. And I was just talking to messaging back and forth with the deputy chief from Carmen, Manitoba, Joey. He tracked down one of our coins that he'd been looking for. So he has a full set of the number 200 now. And he was all excited. And and I was like, well, you know, like, let's have a look at the rest of your collection and, and kind of went through a bunch of stuff. So it's always nice to go to these places and meet up with people that you maybe only interact with on social media or you've met once or twice in real life. And now you're, you know, you go back, right? Some of those places, Carmen, I've been there so many times, right? It's the Seahawk office and a lot of the people that work there become friends now. And a lot of people in that area have become friends and it's nice to get out there and, and see everybody. So... All right. I want to talk a little bit about what we call the practical series, right? So we've kind of been developing this. And for anyone that knows me, knows I'm not a huge fan that there's thousands and thousands of different trainers out there trying to convince us all to go this way and that way. So this series isn't actually even a certified series. We're not, it's not NFPA. It's not. What we found was that there's fire departments, big and small, right? It's right up to the biggest ones and right down to the smallest, you know, 10 firefighters do 10 calls a year. Sometimes there was holes. And so we started with the practical firefighter. So you did a lot of that development. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a really good course so far. We've started pushing it out to a few places that we're working with through evals and stuff and getting some firefighters going on the basic training. And that's exactly what it was meant to be, right? Is just that basic training, give you a very basic idea of, you know, this is how, a fire, or what a firefighter should know. This is how a firefighter should do it add on department SOGs and how you do things and all that. And there's always ways to go left, go right to kind of match your department, but it's the foundation that a firefighter should be built on. You know, where I disagree with NFPA on some of this is I, I was teaching a 1001 course once and a guy uh, that, that has been a firefighter for a long time, older gentleman decided to take his 1001, just have a certificate on the wall to end off his career probably in the next little while. And I sat there and we talked about sprinklers probably almost all day, right? Fire alarm system, sprinklers, stuff like that. And he finally put his hand up and he said, you know, in the area that is kind of like our first do or first uh, response district for us, I think we have about two buildings that have that. And we never had an incident there since I've been on. So it really clicks home that does everyone need to know that? Does every single person, like when we're talking about NFPA 1001, the base level for firefighters or so they tell us, and there's so much in there that 
do you need it? Is there really, and it's a long program, right? It takes a lot, especially when we talk about volunteer paid on call, you had to give up a lot of weekends. That's how I did mine. It was 12 weekends. And uh, yeah, it just takes a lot out of people to try and fit all of that into a busy schedule that you have kids in sports and your own life. And you can't just miss, you know, your family life every weekend for three, four months straight. Right. So I think this will be a good course. And, and so far it's proved so that it's very, just, this is what you need to know. These are the basis of what you should know and then build on your training from there. Yeah. So to give credit where credit is due, this is kind of an offshoot from the entry level firefighter that the Alberta fire training school used to have way back at the start of my career. They did a really good job with it. And then they just dropped it because everyone wanted that certification, that high level, got to get in there. Right. But uh, really kind of what happened now, and it's just a, an epidemic almost is you have all these 1001 trained firefighters with little to no experience the knowledge that they got from the instructor that gave them the course, which varies greatly from organization to organization. And they just haven't been firefighters. So then, you know, they put their name in everywhere and I can't get a job. It's so weird. Like I have all the certifications. It's like, yeah, you're certified, but you're not really qualified for any of these jobs. Right. And so the practical firefighter kind of came out from that need of I'm well known for saying that 1001 needs to change, right? It should be an apprenticeship. It should be, you have to be on so long before you can take part one. You have to be on for so long before you take part two. Just going to Texas for two weeks and taking 1001 and coming back and thinking you're a firefighter is wrong, just dead wrong. And so as we try to figure this all out, how do we do it, right? And so for us, with the customers we have, we just wanted to have this small, it's two weekends, right? We'll make sure you don't hurt yourself or any of the people around you and kind of get you started in firefighting. So that was the practical firefighter. Practical leadership was way more fun for me. I think one, because I'm we're in the wheelie chair gang, right? So I leadership is my thing, but I was excited to work with you and Patrick and Logan and, and others in the fire service that, that helped us out along the way to be this, you know, you're, there's 1021, how to be an officer, or should I say how to read budgets and talk about talking to council and some of these things. And then you could go and take your bachelor's degree and someone, I guess, by taking that at certain places will think that they're a leader just from that. We wanted to be out there with, again, a two weekend course, right? Could even be chopped down more than that if it has to be to just say, what do I need, right? Like there's still fire departments out there that are electing their chiefs and their deputy chiefs and their captains every single year, which is just mind blowing to me. That would just be like me interviewing two mechanics and saying, yeah, I liked you the best. So you're going to be the guy that works on my car, right? Like you got to do more homework than that. And so we just wanted to have this course to do it. So you were nice. You let us uh, come up and, and test it in Slave Lake. And I'm just kind of curious what the feedback was from all of that. Yeah. You know, I think that the biggest problem with all the courses that are, you know, that you, I guess mentioned is it's not obviously what the fire service needs. There's so many people that have all of the training in the world, but they're missing one piece. They can't talk to people. And to be a good leader, whether it's a hard conversation or an easy conversation, good or bad conversation, you need to be able to sit there and, and be able to converse in a professional manner and get your point across in a good way, right? And and sometimes it takes more grit and sometimes it takes being nicer and, you know, sometimes it ends in tears and sometimes it ends in happiness, but we need to capture that because all the degrees and master degrees and certificates in the world can't teach you that, right? It's hard because how do you teach that? Even in the practical leadership, it's hard, 
right? I think we talk about it a lot. There's a lot of conversations that you have to have in the course and conversing with other people. And really the only way to truly do it is to get the experience, to just pull up your pants, sit down and have the conversations. I know for me, believe it or not, coming from you, I I don't feel (laughs) like it's something you ever struggle with, but I struggle with at the start. I didn't like having those conversations, but I knew that if I wanted to progress my career and be good at it, I had to push myself to do it, right? When I first started as a firefighter, I didn't love giving fire prevention presentations, but to get out of your comfort zone and push yourself to do those things is the only way to overcome those things. It's the only thing, because then the second meeting, all you have is the experience from the first meeting. And the third meeting, all you have is the experience from the first and second meeting, right? And eventually it becomes hundreds of meetings and you lose track because it's not really a statistics that you want to keep, but you have all the experience from those past interactions that you can pull from, right? So it's been good that way. It's good, I think, for the command and control side. We talk about blue card all the time because it's one of the only ones. How it's one of the only ones, I don't understand. You know, I, I read a Facebook post the other day about blue card and a guy was making fun of the the size up chart for an MVC and he's, you know, it's an offensive attack and blah, blah, blah. And he's going through all the things because at the end of the day, call a spade a spade. I don't think there's a fire service left in North America unless all they do is fires and don't do the rescue side that does majority fires, right? FDNY does 30,000 fires a year probably, and that is not the majority of their call type, right? So we need a system that can teach you how to rock talk on the radio, give a good idea of this is what we're seeing in front of us. This is what we're going to do to try and make it better. This is what our people are going to do. This is what we see more resources, less resources, whatever, right? So that's really come a long way. We had a bunch of people that had experience with the blue card and taking the blue card, but it really just pushes you down one route, right? So the practical leadership has been awesome. It was great for our department. It got a lot of people thinking about a lot of different things, more on the personal level and just how can we do this differently? I do love the blue card system. I'm glad I took it. You know, there's 10% of it that I use every day. I To the blue card people, good work. But if you could make one for smaller fire departments, that's shorter and makes more sense for volunteer paid on call even small career fire departments we would appreciate that yours is too big it's great for phoenix it's great for new york it's great for calgary and edmonton um it's not so good for smaller ones extending on the call types too i think is a big one right try and uh get some different incidents. Maybe they're working on that. Yeah, hopefully, absolutely. In the meantime, you know, we develop these little pieces to try and help out where we can, right? And then the last one that's being developed right now by a local guy here is the practical fire medic. And so, you know, this is not losing track of the patient and it's not a first aid course and it's not a PCP course. It's how do you actually go out and apply physical hands-on things? So you have to have the extrication mannequins and you have to set up tough scenarios and it's all really scenario driven, scenario based where it's like, you got to get out there and we can't uh, be overcome by the incident and stop working on the patient. And uh, I think back to a call in between Slave Lake and Athabasca where a guy sadly ended up losing his life. You know, he lost a lot of blood through a bleed that didn't necessarily get caught early enough. And it wasn't, you know, it was like, it's a big accident. It's a hard extrication. It's far away from everything. There's a million things that doesn't make it the firefighter's fault, right? The accident happened. It is what it is. But it was a piece where we learned where you can never take your eyes off the patient, know everything there is to know about the patient, and then work the scene around that patient. And so I think the practical fire medic is is that kind of a thing. Whether you're a first aider, a paramedic, an advanced first aider, an MFR, whatever you have, is to try and make sure that we don't lose focus on the patient during the incident. Yeah, I think working as a paramedic part-time too, and I know, you know the guys that are working on it for you are as well as 
we really struggle on the paramedic side because oftentimes we try and take the patient to the back of the ambulance because that's our controlled environment when you're working on the ambulance, right? We get to decide what happens. We can lock the doors. We can unlock the doors. We can, we know where all this stuff is. So we try to get them to the comfort of where we know where everything is and how it's comfortable to do our job often. And there isn't that availability in a lot of these instances because they're trapped. And we don't get any training when we get onboarded as paramedics. I probably work for the service that does the most pre on the streets training. A lot of other ones do a lot less. And we don't, I can tell you, I went to school for three weeks before I was allowed to work for them. And we didn't talk about any of that, right? Talk to the firefighters, see where you're at. And it was like, okay, done, right? And it was like a 30 second conversation. So I think that's really important. I think of my first extrication ever, there was a, an ambulance that came from a place that was close to us. It was an accident uh, halfway between Slave Lake and Flatbush, so pretty far away. The firefighters in Flatbush got there first. They were starting the extrication. I got tasked to get in the back. I was probably 17, 18 years old. I'm holding C-spine. I don't know anything about medical yet, except for standard first aid at the time. And I'm just holding so that we can get in there and get a C-collar on. Medics show up, they come around, they're like, yeah, get in the back and you can get in by that firefighter and kind of assess the patient while we're continuing to work. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't know what's going on. And he's pulling cribbing out of the roof that they're trying to raise up and get the guy out. And all of a sudden, I just remember Patrick losing his mind on the guy, which rightfully so, right? And it's just like, holy crap. And I tell that story all the time when I'm talking to medics and when I'm talking to new firefighters, there's so many key pieces for that communication between the two because they have an important job to do. We have an important <laughs> job to do, but we can't have this pissing match on every single extrication call, right? Yeah. And so I think that's kind of what the practical medic's about. So that'll be out in 2024. We're excited. So 2023, we learned a lot of lessons and we figured a lot of things out. 2024, we're excited for the future. I know you'll be on again through the thing. So thanks for being on the podcast today. And here's to 2024. Yeah, here's 24. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Growing Up Fire today. Follow me on Instagram at Chief Coots to comment or send questions. We appreciate your support.